If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. And I'll be reading this morning before our time of worship. Actually, this is a time of worship, reading the scriptures. Uh, from, the new, from the New King James, I'm sorry, I, I'm not the ASV guy yet. This is New King James, it's what I'm used to. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And I just correct myself once again, reading of the word of God is worship. So I just wanted to change that a lot of churches have got away from reading the scriptures and we should never take that lightly for the scriptures are the word of God and that is a time of worship before we get into word this morning I'd just like to take a moment and pray father I thank you that I can uh, share your word this morning I do not take that lightly and I pray father God that you would work through me to this morning encourage us where we need to be encouraged, encourage, Father, to enlighten us where we need more knowledge, to challenge us and convict us if we need that, Father. But more than anything, to bring us closer to you this morning, from being together, worshiping you, and hearing your word. Help us to receive it this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, whenever I get asked to preach, and this was kind of at the last minute, I always go to the book of Ephesians. If you've been here for a while, you know that's my favorite book in the scriptures. Because it's just so much truth in so many short chapters. And that before I get into the passage this morning, it's always good to set the foundational truth of the book of Ephesians. And so the way I look at the book, I divide it into two sections. Chapters 1 through 3 are doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6 are duty. Chapters 1 through 3 have to do with our position and who we are in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 have to do with our practice. That is living up to that. And Paul does that often in his writings. He gives us knowledge about what it means to be in Christ before he tells us how to live for Christ. And we need to understand that. I'll tell you, with new Christians, the most important thing we can teach them is what it means to be in Christ. And the resources they have of being in Christ. Chapter 1, he outlines this tremendous work of God in salvation. The Father planned our salvation, the Son procured our salvation, and the Holy Spirit is processing our salvation, not only by bringing us to Christ in faith, but also working in us through sanctification. And that truth is so important in those first 14 verses that he ends that chapter with a prayer that we would understand supernaturally what he's just shared with us. Chapters 2 and 3, then, he goes into even greater detail of what it means to be united in Christ relationally and with each other. And how important that truth is in the body of Christ. He not only ends also that chapter with a prayer, but that prayer is slightly different. Instead of understanding the truth, he now prays that Christ would fill it home in our hearts. 
And we begin to let him have the whole house, every room, until we experience the fullness of his love. Chapter 4, then he says, I beseech you that you walk worthy, that you live up to who you are in Christ. And he begins to tell us what it means to live up to that position in Christ. First of all, to have unity in the body and to understand what your ministry and gifts are in the body. And then how to live within the framework of the world, how to walk in love and light, and how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and how that transitions in into your home life, your marriage relationship, your, your parenting relationship, the work relationship. He covers every aspect of our lives. So that brings me to chapter 6 and verse 10, and finally. He says, finally, my brethren. Okay. So finally... And, I, and the way I like to look at that is if you know who you are in Christ and you're trying to live up to your position in Christ, then you're going to be attacked by the spiritual forces of wickedness. It's coming. That's who Satan loves to attack and his horde are those who are attempting to live for Christ. So he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. The first thing we need to see in this passage is that the persons who are involved in this battle, my brethren... Christians are primarily involved in this battle. Now, Satan is working through all the forces of the world, all the people of the world, but he's attacking most viciously those who are attempting to live for Christ. We are the ones involved in the battle. Number two, we do not wrestle, verse 12, against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan has a whole hierarchy of fallen angels, of levels of them. Just like God has angelic levels, he has fallen deep beings, demonic beings that come against us. So we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, we're wrestling against spiritual forces. It's a spiritual battle. Secondly, we need to see the power source we need for this battle. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. What he's saying here is we need to be strengthened or made strong in his might. It's interesting that this is a present imperative passive. Present means it's ongoing. We need to continually be made strong in the power of his might. Imperative means it's a command. And a passive means it's his might. It's not our might. And that's the first thing we need to get in our hearts and minds is if we don't walk in the power of His strength and His might, the power of the Holy Spirit, relying on God, we will not stand against the spiritual forces of wickedness. We will fall. We will be deceived. We will be drawn away. It's interesting how often we're tempted to rely on our own resources. I think of John chapter 15 where Jesus told His disciples, Without me you can do some things. Amen, Mary Lou, that's exactly right, and you all knew it. Without me, you can do nothing. But how often are we tempted to think we can do it in our own strength? We know how to do it. We know the drill. I, I mean, I fall into that trap sometimes. Think of Romans chapter 8, says, So that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You're either walking in the, His power, in the power of the Spirit of God, or you're walking in your flesh. And if you're walking in your flesh, you're going to do the things of the flesh a lot of times. We can hide them sometimes pretty good. As uh, Jeff McIntyre says, sometimes we can offer up grade A choice flesh to God. We can look really good. But on the inside, we're struggling. On the inside, we can be far away from the Lord. We need to guard against that. 
We need to realize without being strengthened in his might and his power that we will not stand against the wiles of the devil. What is the plan for the battle? Well, there's two plans. There's our strategy, the strategy of the saints. And let's look at what it is. He says that you're to be strengthened with his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Notice again, he says, take up, verse 13, the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, verse 14, stand therefore. Our strategy is stand, to stand firm. It's not an offensive strategy, folks, against the spiritual forces. It's a defensive strategy. What do you mean by that? Well, our primary goal is not to go out and war against Satan. Our primary goal is to live for God and to carry out the Great Commission, which is making disciples of all nations, of all people around the world. And as we're doing that, as we're attempting to live for the Lord, and we're attempting to carry out the Great Commission, Satan comes against us with his wiles. He attacks us. He tricks us. And so our battle primarily is defensive. James 4, 7 says, resist resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9 says, Resist him, steadfast in the faith, having the same, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brethren in the world. Resist him. We're resisting Satan and his attacks. And he is out there. He has a strategy to come against us. And what is his strategy? Well, it's offensive. It's offensive. It's the wiles of the devil. Some versions would say the schemes. This word is actually the word methodia. And it really means schemes or deceptions. He comes at us with this methodical way of attacking us. It means a procedure, a process, or a method. Satan has a way of attacking people. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's interesting when he says Satan here, he uses the word Diablos. The only other place he uses that in this book is in chapter 4, verse 27. He calls him the Diablos, or slanderer. Keep that in mind. We're going to talk more about his strategy in a little while, but I want to move on. What is the protection we must have to be victorious in this battle? Well, he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. The armor of God is what we need in our lives. And it's interesting when he tells us to put on the full armor of God. We look at these different parts of the armor, and there's always this question among theologians is whether this is objective or subjective. What I mean by that, is this God's armor, or is this something that we have in our lives that we experience? I think it's both. Because the armor is God's armor. This is not something that we ourselves come up with. In fact, he tells us to put it on. And this goes back to chapter 4 where he says, put on new clothes of Christ. This is something we have to put on. Each and every day, really. It is not our armor, it's God's armor. And if we want to be victorious, we've got to put it on so we can stand in the power of God. I'm going to go over these things quickly because this is not my main part of my message. This is just going over it. What is the girdle of truth? He says, stand therefore, verse 14, having girded yourself with truth. Is this a truth of God's word? 
Or is this truthfulness in our lives? It's both, I think. We're girded with the truth of God's word because all truth comes from God and his word. But this speaks of truthfulness in our lives also. This the imparted God's truth into our lives. We become people of the truth. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says we're to be speaking the truth in love to each other to build each other up. We're to be people of truth. Chapter 4 verse 25 when he talks about the old man it says, Wherefore putting away lying, speak truth with each other for we're members one of another. We're to be people characterized by knowing the truth and living the truth. And that protects you vitally in your life. If we allow ourselves to be deceived and become people that are not truthful, that are not characterized by truth, it destroys our relationship with God, it hinders that, and it hinders our relationship with each other. I love that passage in Ephesians chapter 4 where he talks about putting on the new man in Christ and putting off the old things. The first thing he says is, wherefore, putting away lying, speak truth with one another for members of each other. Let me ask you a question. What kind of friendship and relationship can you have with someone who lies to you all the time? If I were to ask you this morning, did you ever had someone in your life, you ever had someone that was a habitual liar? Did you want to be around that person? And you'd say, no. No, truthfulness is important in our life. And we need to be people characterized by truth because if we allow deceptions to come into our lives, we are not going to be able to stand. So the first thing is, the girdle of truth. The second thing is the breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness is this? Is it our righteousness or God's righteousness? It's both. It starts with the imputed righteousness of God. We are imputed God's righteousness. So we stand before God as we're totally righteous. But God wants that to become the inward righteousness of that righteousness we receive. That means as we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, we do what is right. It's sanctifying righteousness that protects our hearts from the attacks of Satan. When we're living in unrighteousness, we're open to the attacks of Satan. So we need to be people that are characterized by understanding who we are in Christ and allowing that righteousness to begin to flow out of our lives. The third thing is the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now this one, you can find all kinds of interpretations of what this means. Whether it means sharing the gospel, uh, this is what I think it means to cut through all of that. And, there, and we should be sharing the gospel. Believers are to be ready and prepared to stand against the onslaught of evil forces because they are firmly grounded in the gospel of peace. You need to understand the gospel. And you need to be people that preach the gospel, not only to others. We need to be people that preach the gospel to ourselves. I read a book one time, worked my way through it with another guy. It's called The Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. Great book, if you've never read it. And he talks about in that book the two truths that we need in our lives. Who we are in Christ and then how we live for the Lord. And we need both of those things in our lives. And one of the things he said we need to do in our lives all the time is preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Remembering who we are in Christ. I am totally forgiven, totally justified, totally righteous in the standing before God. If I wasn't because of what Christ did for me, I would never be in the presence of God. But on the other hand, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. And those two things often seem to be in contradiction to each other. But I need to remind myself, 
I'm not there yet. I'm not totally sanctified. I am positionally, but I'm not practically. I'm on a pathway of growing to the Lord. And sometimes mine is like this instead of like this. But as I go up and down, I'm moving upwards. I'm getting closer to the Lord. I'm becoming more like Christ. shouldn't say I'm really getting closer to the Lord. I'm becoming more like Christ in my attitudes and actions. And that sometimes is a battle. It's often a battle. Maybe it's always a battle. But as I allow that thing, I realize that my righteousness, my peace... Is in the gospel. My sure-footedness of that armor, which they wore cleats to give them sure-footedness in the battle, and that Roman armor, that comes from knowing who I am in Christ and realizing that I have salvation through the gospel. I have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this. He says, and above all, taking up or taking the shield of faith. This is interesting. Because he says you need to have these things in your life, this armor, but you above everything else, some people say in addition to everything else, you must take up the shield of faith. The tense changes here to where this is Eris active voice. This is something that we've got to be doing all the time in our lives, walking in faith. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. We're not only saved by faith, we live by faith. And faith is extremely important in this battle. This shield was a shield that was probably two and a half feet wide and four feet tall. In other words, it protected you from head to toe almost. It was covered with leather and with canvas, or canvas and leather. The edges had metal around them. And this shield could stop nearly all the flaming arrows that were shot at it. And often, the shield was the only thing between you and certainly being injured or killed. The shield of faith is tremendously important in our lives. This faith is trusting God on a daily basis. We're faced every day with believing lies and being deceived or trusting God and knowing God through the truth of his word. The lies come to us from the world. They come to us from our own flesh. They come to us from satanic forces. You could be lied to from all three. The world system is constantly lying to us. Constantly lying. Our own flesh can deceive us and lie to us. And then Satan himself is ultimately the one these lies come from. We'll see that in just a moment. He says, grabbing the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. The helmet of salvation, that's confidence and knowing that's surety of our salvation. We need to know that we have a relationship with Christ. A vital living relationship. And that set protects our heart, our minds is to know that we are saved and have that thing nailed down. And then the only offensive part of the armor is the sword of the Spirit. And notice it's the sword of the Spirit. It's not our sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's vitally important that we know God's word. We know God's word. He says if we do these things, we can stop all the fiery arrows arrows of the wicked one, or darts, as the King James says. He shoots these things at us. And what I started thinking about is what are these flaming arrows that Satan is firing at us constantly, trying to pierce our armor, trying to get us to fall. 
This is what the Bible says in John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. For when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources or his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Lies are the way in which Satan attacks us. You go back to the Garden of Eden. It was lies of Satan. It was a half-truth, which is a full lie. He says, when you eat the fruit, Eve, you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Did she know both good and evil after eating the fruit? Was she like God? In no way was she like God. In fact, she was further away from God. Satan is a master at twisting the truth. He's a master at deceiving us with his lies. Even when he tempted Christ, did he not take the word of God? Did he not take a promise in the Old Testament and try to deceive Christ? He told Christ, he said, you know, if you fall off the temple, the angels of God, it's promised in the Old Testament, will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So if you just jump off the temple and these angels rush in and, and, and bear you up, then all people will know you're the, you're the Messiah. You can go ahead and have the crown without the cross. What did Jesus say? You shall not tempt the Lord your God. He also said this. When Satan tempted him to use his own power outside of dependence on the Father. You know, Christ had fasted 40 days. And he said, well, if you're the Son of God, why don't you turn to... I know you're hungry. You've been fasting 40 days. We've been going at this thing for 40 days. Why don't you just take some of those stones over there and make some yeast rows. Some Quincy's yeast rows. You would like that, wouldn't you? Jesus was totally dependent upon the Father. I think Jesus, still being God, lived his life as a human, dependent upon the Father. And so he did not exercise his own ability to make those things. He said, you know what? He says, the Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If my Father tells me to make stones into bread, I'll do so. But otherwise, I'm not doing anything. I don't, he said it over and over again. I don't do anything unless my Father tells me to do it. Totally dependent and obedient to the Father. Satan comes at us with these lies. They come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. The three ways he comes at us with are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It has not changed since the Garden of Eden. She saw the fruit was beautiful to look at. She knew it would taste really good. She thought, oh, this is going to be good. It's probably better than any other fruit in the garden. That's why God said, I can't have it. And then I'll be like God. I'll be like God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He knows us. He knows how to appeal to us and come to us. So what are some of the lies he tells us? Well, I think primarily there's three areas that Satan lies to us about. He deceives us. First of all, he lies to us about God. He lies to us about God. He tries to convince us that God is, does not exist. That's the first lie. There's no God. He's not really there. Secondly, he gets us to doubt the character of God, that God is not good. Well, God can't be good, and he has a multiplicity of reasons why God can't be good. Number three, perhaps he gets you to 
To doubt God's love. Well, God really doesn't love you. God can't love you. He attacks the character of God. And he uses all these different things to come at us to get us to doubt God and his goodness and his existence. Secondly, he lies to you about yourself. And he uses all the things in your life, all the things you've experienced to try to get you to believe things about yourself that are not true. He lies to you to make you think that you're better than you are. He lies to you to make you think that you're lower than you are. He attacks both ways. And I've seen people beat down by both truths, walk around in pride and arrogance, and other people walking down feeling like, you look, you're not good and you're not. In Christ, you are complete. Outside of Christ, you're undone. We're not as good as our best day and we're not as bad as our worst day. We're far worse than our worst day. And we're never good at all in and of ourselves. It's only through Christ. And he, he lies to us to get us to concentrate on ourselves. We think humility is thinking low, too lowly of ourselves. Humility is really not thinking about yourself at all. It's thinking about God first, others second, and yourself last. A lot of times we're consumed with ourselves. But he gets us to believe things that are not true. You know, our childhood can affect that way in our lives. I was raised by two parents that were, that were perfectionists. They really were. They were very good people, but they were perfectionists. Everything they did was to perfection. I've told this story before, but I can remember when my mother was cleaning the downstairs tile floor in our house in Chattanooga. I can remember, I see it in my mind, she's in a corner with a toothbrush scrubbing the very corner as she's stripping the wax off that floor because there couldn't be any dirt in the very corner. And when that floor was done, you could literally look down and see yourself. That's how perfectionistic she was. My dad was the same way, hard-driven perfectionistic people. Growing up with that, I adopted this thing of perfectionism. Nothing was ever good enough for me. No matter how good I did something... Uh, I remember when I played football, I could get the game ball and be the player of the week, and all I could think about was the three plays I messed up on. And I carried that over into my Christian life for a while. This perfectionism, thinking unless I was perfect, God wasn't pleased with me. And I, and I, I would feel that way. Even though I knew in Christ I was perfect, if I didn't have the best of days, I would feel in my heart, God doesn't like me. God's not pleased with me. God rejects me. And so Satan comes at us with his lies, and he gets us to believe lies about other people. That we can't trust others. That we can't have friends. That people, you know, will, anyone, if you trust them, they're going to stab you in the back. That you've got to try to control them and manipulate them. And so it's important that we look in our lives and we understand that we may have some lies that we still believe. And we're holding on to you know, I'll share one of them that I, that, I, that I used to believe. I used to believe, and this is, this is just total transparency, that I had a trump card, card with God. That I'd walked with God long enough and served God long enough that if I really, really needed God to do a big miracle for me, he would do it. And so there was a situation that arose where my brother was dying of leukemia. He had just come out of a cult. All of his family was still in this cult. And I said, all right, God, if you raise him up, if you raise him up, this will be the thing that shows. If you heal him from this. And in the middle of the night, I was laying on the bathroom floor crying out to God before I drove to Tennessee 
to the hospital. And it was one of those situations where there was no hope. His heart, he'd worked at that hospital, and his heart had quit beating seven or eight times that night. And every time they'd resuscitated him. And, of course, in the morning, I knew things were bad. I couldn't get a straight answer out of any of the doctors. I knew it was bad. And finally, the doctor, the chaplain came in, and another chaplain came in, and him hauled around. And, and finally, a doctor came in and just said, look, there's no hope. We, we've got to quit doing this. But we can't stop doing this till you say stop. And I said, well, we, we need to stop. I looked at my mom. I looked at his son. I said, it's time for this to stop. And, and I went in, and it was a nurse actually sitting on his chest doing chest compressions when we walked into the ER. And I thanked all the hospital staff, and I said, because they knew my brother. They loved him. I said, it's time to stop. And I was really got mad at God after that because I said, God, where were you? Where were you in all of this? Where was my miracle, God? Because I'd always thought God was going to do this miracle. I remember driving home one day and I'm having this conversation with God. I said, where were you? And God spoke to my heart and he said, Dustin, in my heart and mind, was what I did on the cross, was that not enough? Can you not trust me and believe in me and follow me no matter what, if you never see a miracle? And my heart just melted full of the Lord. And I said, yes, God. If I never see a miracle in my life, I'm totally happy. And if you work miracles for everyone else, God, I'm totally happy because Jesus is enough. To make a long story short, a couple of years after that or a year and a half after that, I'm running one Saturday morning. I get to a park in South Huntsville. And I see these family members that were in this cult. And they've come out of that cult. Not only did they come out of the cult, but a majority of their family had left that cult. And God's like, see, I work miracles in ways you don't know, Dustin. What was a greater miracle, me raising him up and healing him or bringing them out of this darkness that they had been in all their lives? Sometimes we believe God. So what can we do? We're finishing up. We're going to finish early this morning. This is probably one of my shortest messages I've preached. But I'm not done yet. Here's some practical things we can do in our lives that will help us in putting on the armor of God. First of all, pray and ask God to reveal any lies that you're believing in your life. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful or wicked way in me. A lot of times we don't see the lies. We've believed them so long, we've held on to them so long, we don't even understand what we're holding on to is a lie. And we need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, show me, open my heart and mind. I've seen it, you know, a lot of times when I'm discipling another man, I can see it in their lies before they can ever see it. And I don't tell them. I don't tell them what the lies. They've got to work their way through it. But I can see what's holding them bondage. And a lot of times what Satan does is that lie you believe and you hold on to, you, you get something in your life to try to make yourself feel better about that. And a lot of times there are, there are acceptable things like workaholism and, and being really good at a hobby or something that we use to medicate ourselves. And other times there's other things that are not very good that we use to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. They're destructive things. All of them can be actually destructive. This some are more socially acceptable. But we need to go before the Lord and ask God to look in our hearts to show us that there's any lies that we believe about ourselves, that we believe about Him or other people. And He will reveal those things to us. 
Secondly, we need to immerse ourselves in the truth of God's word. We need to immerse ourselves in the truth of God's word. This, this book, we not only read it, but this book reads us. It reads us intimately. It's like a mirror. When we look into it, it shows us a lot of times the deceptions that we're believing. The wrong things we're believing about God or ourselves or other people. It helps us to see ourselves clearly. And we need it every day in our lives. Jesus said, Father, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Without the truth of God's word, what are we depending on to see the truth? It is the truth. It helps us to see things clearly. God clearly, ourselves clearly, and other people clearly. And then the third thing I would suggest is that you surround yourself with a group of believers who can speak truth into your life. I love to hear about the men's group meeting on Wednesday night. I've got a group of guys I meet with on Thursday morning. And I've got some other people. I've got different levels of groups. And some of them are really close. They read me. Not only can I read them, but they read me. I'll have, sometimes I've got one, he'll call me and say, are you okay? And I've learned not to lie to him. I just say, no, I'm not okay. I'm struggling. He said, I thought you were. Let's pray. You know, and he'll talk me through it. And sometimes he'll confront me. He told me this recently. He called me. He said, Dustin, I think you're running from this. I said, what do you mean? He explained it to me. And I said, well, maybe you're right. Maybe I am running from that. Maybe I'm trying to get away from that. And Lord, why am I, why am I pulling away from this in my life? We need people like that can speak the truth of God's love and grace into our lives. And I do the same for him. When I see that he's struggling or I detect that, I'll call him up. What's going on? And he'll tell me. We need people like that. And just having somebody there to, to talk you through it, to walk with you through it, to put the truth of God's word, to speak it into your heart and life is extremely important in overcoming the fire darts of the wicked one. Because he's constantly shooting them at us. And they're coming from every direction. Sometimes they come from him and his demonic forces. Sometimes they come from the world. Sometimes they come from our own heart. Things that we believed and held on to. And we need to see those things. And so if you could do three things in your life practically. Praying. And he ends this notice. I didn't read verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in his spirit. Being watchful to this end. With perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Praying. Reading the word of God in it every day. And then making yourselves accountable to other people. If we will do those things in our lives, we will have victory over the wicked forces of darkness. The spiritual forces of wickedness. And we will please the Lord in all things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these who have come together to worship. I pray for those, Father, that are sick and struggling this morning, just be with them. I pray for those that are watching via the Internet this morning, that you would just work in their hearts also, for those that would love to be here but they can't. Father, use your word this morning to speak to us in a powerful way and bring us closer to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.